Digital Drift, episode 39, Halloween Spooktacular, number 3. October 31st, 2014, Troll and Troll 2, Double Bill. The first two, in case you were wondering, were Digital Gonzo episodes 107 and 153, Monster House and Ghost Watch. To take a little break from Gamergate, here's a pair of daft, fun, incompetently constructed, appallingly acted creature features. Happy Halloween! And if you haven't yet been scared by the prospect of going up against savage Wendigos in New Century, episode 4 of the Cartographer's Handbook web series is now available for preview to patrons, and episode 3 for general viewing on YouTube. Now, the first one is a fairly nonsensical and confused creature feature from 1986. The second was an unrelated feature originally entitled Goblins, but named Troll 2 so as to deliberately be confused with the original by its insane producers. Okay, so we'll do these in order, shall we? Uh, Troll 1, or Troll, if you will. Once upon a time when the world was filled with wonder... Little creatures shared the earth with humans, and magic was a way of life. Once Upon a Time is now. Empire Pictures presents Troll, the weirdest, the rowdiest, the most mischievous, and the scariest little creature of them all. What he's doing is going from apartment to apartment and transforming sections of this building into different fairy worlds. The hell are you? The transformation is going to begin on the witch's Sabbath, the very same day that the Potters move into their new apartment. I've never seen so many guys take so long to move so little furniture. It's all your records, honey. You've got to get rid of some of these records. Sometimes I wonder what I'm gonna do. No, there ain't no kill for the summertime blues. What the Potters don't know is that they've just moved into the building that is the enchanted gateway to the ancient world of Troll. Shut that damn door! Harry Jr. is about to be drawn into a world beyond his wildest fantasy, and he'll need a little magic of his own to get out of it alive. Harry Potter Jr. expected to have a little trouble getting adjusted in his new neighborhood. But he never expected anything like this. Troll, where myths and legends come to life. (laughs) 
how do we describe this? Uh, um, should we do a brief synopsis? Yeah, I think so. I think it deserves one. Otherwise, whatever else we have to say is going to make no sense. Yeah. The second, we're going to do a play-by-play because we can't describe the whole movie to you. We're going to need to go into detail in all of it. But this one is effectively just the same thing happening over and over again. So it's fairly straightforward to uh, cover. Made in 1986. Let's see when Poltergeist was made. Ah, 1982. So, yeah, this film is deliberately trying to be like Poltergeist to begin with. It's got that same kind of... And it concerns itself with a little blonde-haired girl who acts creepy. That's about where it ends. It's a family who are being terrorized by a, a malevolent creature. And that's about where the similarities end. Right. Oh, God. The Potter family move into a new apartment and immediately you cut to the little girl going down into the basement. She goes into, like, the washroom. She sees a troll. Somehow he beams her into his ring and assumes her form. Her brother comes down and finds her, but it's actually the troll in disguise. And it's a bloody good disguise because he manages to fool the whole family. Like, he goes upstairs. He's a bit more rowdy, or she's a bit more rowdy and hyperactive, a little bit aggressive, but they take it as her being playful. But never once do they stare into her eyes and go, no, 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 this is not my child. Whatever that thing is, it is not my child. She like, she shoves her neighbor down the stairs. She's ch- I mean, The way I'm describing it, it sounds a lot more dramatic than it actually is. It's played, like, kind of like... It's played goofy. Uh, this this neighbour, by the way, is Sonny Bono. And he's like this quagmire-type guy who's, uh, who's like sort of you know, brings a hooker back to it. Is she a hooker? Um, no, I don't... I, I, well, no, no money well, changes hands, but he's... You know, it's, it's irrelevant, really. She's... The, <laughs> she's she, she's allowed the herself night with to a sleep complete, ugh, with this guy. Of a man. Right. But then the the little girl slash the troll sneaks into his house, hides behind his sofa, and then when he looks, she's a troll again. And then she... This is what the troll does to this guy and everyone else over the course of the film inside the tower block. The troll, like, like has a little stinger on his ring. He stings Sonny Bono, and Sonny Bono goes... Arr! Sits back on the couch, turns into a giant pea pod, and then sprouts like plants and then the plants grow out over the entire room and again whatever you're just you're whatever you're picturing in your head you're using like modern cgi to paint the picture of it no no no, no. think way lower tech than that like think sub evil dead one um and yeah the entire room gets covered in sort of greenery and uh, then like a, a, another bunch of trolls start hatching out of this giant pea pod and basically the troll wants to like turn this tower block into a giant foresty jungle type thing. Full of boglins. Full of boglins. There's this insane moment where the the father, whose name is Harry Potter, his son is called Harry Potter Jr. In fact, the makers of Troll went, Ugh, Joe Rowling stole these ideas. No, she didn't. Get over yourselves. It's just an alarming coincidence that this guy's name is Harry Potter. Uh, the, The dad engages in this really... Just indescribable dance routine. He's just, he's flipping out while dancing for no apparent reason. I'm not sure what it's supposed to be for. And then 
the kid Harry Potter Jr. starts to suspect that his sister is actually like possessed by some demon or something's wrong with her. He goes upstairs to see a woman named Eunice St. Clair, who's a witch, played by June Lockhart, and is the best performance in this. I attributed her to being like a, an 80-year-old Morena Baccaran. Um, because she has the same kind of sparkling eyes. Uh, and she's like, she's very offhand with him, and she's, you know, I'm a witch. There's a whole thing about, you know, she explains about the troll, but way too late. Like, everything, you've kind of had to work out what's going on for yourself by this point. So when she explains it, she's like, oh yeah, he's actually like my husband, who was a tr- like a prince or a wizard or something, and now he's a troll, and he's going to try and turn this entire tower block into a giant jungle. Julia Louise Dreyfus turns up, turns into a dryad because of the troll. There's uh, the guy actually inside the troll, Peter Fonda Caro, uh, plays uh, is, is a little man named Malcolm Mallory in this. And uh, again, gives a fantastic performance. Either he talked to the director and said, could I be in this film as well? Like get some face time because there really aren't that many roles for little people like then and now. I mean, really, Peter Dinklage has had to turn down a lot of crappy leprechaun-style roles to get to where he is today. He has had to fight and fight and fight. Peter Fondacaro, he's not bad as a troll. He's really pretty good out of the troll outfit. He gives a couple of good uh, little speeches. And then he talks um, to the little girl about how um, uh, his body's dying and he actually, you know, he's, he's pretty much on the way out. Uh, and he's always, when he was a kid, dreamed of being like an elf or something magical and for this to be something that wasn't just a quirk of genetics. And this is the best bit of the film. The girl slash the troll takes pity on Malcolm and then turns him into a big pea pod so that then a little elf can hatch out of it. And the troll's doing it as an act of mercy as opposed to out of malevolence, which is one of the only bits of the film that you go, huh. And then the witch tries to take him on, and then the boy tries to take him on, and uh, then, like, they they win, somehow. He has to fight Man-Bear-Pig at the end, somehow. Literally Man-Bear-Pig turns up. The whole film is gibberish, but it's got this kind of, oh, okay, I see what's going on here. Like, like you can you can sort of see the structure of a film in there, uh, and I'm only mentioning this because of what we're about to talk about. <laughs> what did you think of this film, Sharon? What surprised me the most was that there were some... I say some, there were two really good performances in this. Uh, Fontacaro is excellent. Mm. He is re- his delivery is great. He's, he's got pathos. Got, he's got a great way of um, uh, putting across I would imagine that the scene where he talks about being a little kid and, and wishing that the reason he was so small was something to do with magic was drawing on his own experiences if it's not, then he puts it across with such empathy that I, I believed it completely. And it was really sad. It actually brought a little bit of a tear to my eye. Yeah, me too. He um, is still alive at, the, at this point. He's 55 years old now. He was yeah. uh, uh, Vankar the Warrior in Willow, if you guys have seen that. Yes, he was. Uh, I don't think he actually had any lines in Willow, unfortunately. I think he grunts and pokes a big pig dog yeah. wolf thing with a spear. Absolutely. But he's the best warrior in the village. (laughs) So there was that. And also, as you say, June Lockhart playing Eunice St. Clair. It it amused me greatly that when Harry first goes and knocks on her apartment door 
and she has all of these well as he points out she has all this cool stuff in her apartment that no adult would really have and this is what this is how he assumes she's a witch because she's got swords hanging up on the walls and all these old books and paintings and things and it's like he says something like, are these yours? Of course they're mine. I live here. Yeah. She's, she's, she's really sarcastic with him. She is. She's kind of, she's very sharp and very smart and very contemporary. And that's why the, the fact that her apartment is full of all of this ancient stuff. And she dresses in a very typical stereotypical or stereotypical witch kind of way. She has this long black high necked dress and, and, um, she sits and paints but she has this great line where he says what is it that you do and he means like for a job or or whatever and um and her, Lily just, Tomlin by the way that's what she's more Lily like Tom- ah oh yes yes yeah. okay yeah Lily Tomlin that works so she's she sat there painting and he says so what do you do and she just looks at him with this incredibly piercing stare and says Whatever the hell I want, <laughs> which is awesome. She, if if she you're has going the air to... of a of a of a, a long practiced Hollywood actress who's done her films and is now just having fun in a film called Troll, where she gets to play a witch. She does, but also I would say if you were smacking going to around bring, Harry Potter, if you were going to bring, uh, is she more Granny Weatherwax or Nanny Og? She's more Granny Weatherwax. I yeah. think. If you were going to bring Granny Weatherwax into a modern setting. That's who she'd be. Yeah, so that's I, it should why be I played her. by Maggie Smith, of course. Totally. I mean, she's. See, this is the other thing about the whole Harry Potter comparison. It is ridiculous. Really, the only thing that connects the two, other than the name, is that they're both about magic. It's a. There are trolls in it, but it's an entirely different kind of troll. There are witches in it, but it's an entirely different yeah. kind of witch. I mean, Joe Rowling has bit... taken obvious influences from things like Lord of the Rings, and yeah, and, you know, so, but. Uh, to start accusing her of nicking from some two-bit from fantasy Troll. film from 1986 it. seems like a bit of a stretch. However, Eunice St. Clair is a wee bit Professor McGonagall. Yeah, in a good way. Mm. So, but the, the father and mother are just completely pointless. Apart from that bonkers dance routine, I don't know what they were there for. And the vast majority of the script is just, what and oh, the kid playing Harry Potter Jr. I was staring at him for the first half of the film, thinking, "I know him. Where have I seen him before?" He looks really, really familiar. Eventually, Atreyu! you, Falcor, It's a train. It is a train. It's a train. I did not guess that. I had to look it up. So yeah, a train with short hair. Cold. Are you all right? Maybe you should go back to bed. Hey, kids, what's going on in there? Oh, I just tripped. Well, babe, was it what you expected? Unfortunately. What? Uh, it was beyond what I expected. (gasps) Feel like breakfast? Sure. There's some pancake mix in the kitchen. Why don't you cook us up some? What? 
Don't you go jumping on the baby. Couldn't get enough of me, huh, babe? Well, just make yourself at home. Look, kid, I don't have any candy and I don't play with toys. Come on, kid, it's Saturday. I got my whole day planned. So why don't you just beat it? This isn't a playground. <laughs> I don't play hide-go-seek either. Most of the tension scenes all seem to be like this little girl breezing into the apartments of these neighbours and like talking in a very weird offhand way in a kind of uh, like, scared I've looked death in the face. What's it look like? What's what look like? Death? Um, that's a weird thing for a little kid to say. I know what it looks like. It looks like this. And then she like, what? It's. It's an odd way of framing it because they just show the troll in broad daylight, like mid shots. So it's like, here's the troll, completely here, no shadows, no sort of hiding the fact that it is the ropiest like suit ever. It's just a troll. And they, they make the troll a character in the film. So much so, I kind of wanted the troll to succeed. Everyone in this film is a pillock except for the witch and Malcolm. But, uh, I mean, frankly, they didn't do anything with Malcolm once he'd been turned into a, a little elf sproutling thing. Just, he was just one of the, this giant chorus of weird, jabbering puppet creatures. I, I like your house, Malcolm. Thank you. You seem to be at peace with the world around you. What? Oh, nothing. I said it looks neat. Are you okay? Sure, hon. You're fibbing. A little. You're real sick, aren't you? Does it show? No, but I can tell. I bet you can. Yes, I'm sick. I'm getting sicker every day, so the x-rays say. What's wrong? Oh, it's, it's complicated. Bone marrow and yucky stuff. Doctors have their big names for it. But if you ask me, this whole body's just worn out. You're gonna die? Looks that way. Hey. Want me to draw you a picture? But you can't die, Malcolm. You're too special. It's okay. I was getting a little tired of this old body anyway. Now, do you want straight or floppy ears on this bunny? 
Oh, um, Floppy. Malcolm? Remember when I asked you if you were an elf? Uh-huh. Did you ever want to be? <laughs> I did, actually. When I was about your age, in fact. Maybe a little older. Doctors talking to my parents about recessive genes. I thought they were talking about pants. It's funny what you think about when you're a child. Just didn't understand what was happening. My parents told me, Malcolm, just not going to grow anymore. I thought, wouldn't it be wonderful if all this was happening to me because I was magic? And not because I was sick. I used to sit in my bedroom and daydream. I wish that I'd wake up the next morning in a land filled with unicorns and dragons and flying horses. Special people. Just like I was. Kept on waiting for that to happen. I'm waiting. Uh, we've talked about it for longer than it really deserves, but uh, it's, it's it's just a daft, odd, weird little creature feature that probably deserves to be seen in conjunction with this next one, just to get you to understand how different they are. So, yeah, your summation of Troll 1? It's... It's naff, and it's meaningless, and it... It's basically a kid-friendly horror movie. Yeah, it is. And it, you, the, the horror is kind of sapped out of it very quickly, because when you realise that Emphasis what the trolls... on the sap. <laughs> when you realise that what the troll's doing is... Um, just transforming people into dryads and naiads and hammer dryads and elfin creatures that will live in this forest that he's they creating. Look like, they look like boglins. They do look like boglins, but ultimately he's turning rather crap humans into rather crap boglins. Rather crap. No change here, creatures. but it's at least so, an interesting apartment now. Exactly. It's it's no great. Except for loss. the fact that the witch says, "Oh, but then once he's made his like special forest, it will burst forth and envelop the world." Will it? Will it really? Because that sounds like it would to require an enormous amount of energy. It would. But all I kept thinking when these um, creepers and vines and things encased the apartments was that scene in uh, Hellboy 2 where the the seed turns into the big tree creature that covers everything in moss. And Hellboy has the choice of, you know, do do you want to end this thing and it's the last of its kind? But that never happens with the kid and the troll. It's just like, get rid of him. And then he does. And then there's no sense of, oh, all he wanted to do was to cover the world in greenery. I mean, frankly, the, the, the big green world isn't that bad an, an idea. It might be a good way of starting again. The problem is the despotic rule of the troll himself. Well, there is that. But he doesn't really do people 
a great amount of harm. He's very controlling and he obviously wants things done the way he's done. And it, it comes out in the story later on that the reason that he is this way is because once upon a time he was a great wizard and the uh, the witch Eunice Sinclair like was engaged Patton, to him. Yeah. Um, and then something happened that I forget and he, as punishment, was turned into this little troll thing. And she was basically set to the task of uh, monitoring him and making sure that he didn't do this again. So, and that was a, that was another thing I really liked about her her story. Actually, when she explains to Harry where she's come from, she says she used to be a princess, uh, but it was really boring, and she didn't want to be a princess. And then she fell in love with a wizard, not a handsome prince, a wizard, and she decided that she wanted them to have something in common. So she learned magic. That's a nice little touch. Yeah, I thought that was a really nifty story for a, a, a strong central female character, albeit in a ridiculous surrounding film. The uh, the the little guy that I mentioned earlier, so he stops the little girl or the troll disguised as a little girl uh, from crossing the road when it's dangerous, and she invites him back to their uh, apartment for dinner. And I remember th- I was sat thinking, this is much a better film. Than they've actually got here. Little girl befriends little man and just sort of like has an entirely innocent platonic friendship with him and her family have to deal with it. That's a much more interesting film. That's more like the station agent. But then I had to keep saying to myself, no, it's actually not a little girl. It's a troll. And this troll has designs on turning this little little man into a pod person. Ugh. Anyway, um... Yeah, I think we'll definitely be watching this again at some point and showing it to other people, uh, if possible. It's it's an oddity unto itself. But the next one. Now, for this one, uh, we need to introduce you to the concept of nanar. Now, uh, that's a French word, meaning movies that are so preposterously bad that they end up being really rather memorable and enjoyable, or even some might say good. And for this, we will utilize the quick wits of Mike Rugnetter of the Idea Channel. Here's an idea. You can't make a movie that's so bad it's good on purpose. The Room, Plan 9 from Outer Space, and Troll 2 are all movies which, though they transgress some of the most basic movie-making tenets, are regardless able to stand as monuments of motion picture entertainment. Most often, films like these are what they are because they are working against their own limitations. Budget, talent, time, know-how, whatever it is, there is a lack of it. But it's more than made up for in gumption. But they are so rare, such the obnoxious, misshapen unicorn of the film industry, that one has to wonder, given their popularity and cult status, why aren't they made constantly? I think maybe... They can't be. In the hierarchy of bad movies, I think it goes something like this. At the topmost rarest spot is the revered good-bad film, followed by, and sometimes overlapping with, the (laughs) B-movie. Classically, a B-movie is a low-budget commercial release. Originally, they were the second feature in a double bill, and thus the B-movie. But since then, B has come to signify most low-budget genre films, especially sci-fi, like the kind of stuff you see on MST3K. But because something is cheaply made, B or bad, by industry standards, does not automatically place it in the good-bad pantheon with Troll 2. They're eating her! Oh my god! 
all good bad movies might be B movies, but not all B movies are good bad masterpieces. And many more films, arguably an infinite number, are just plain bad. Student films, art house nonsense, and recent Adam Sandler films go in the lowest slot on the bad movie hierarchy. Just below films like Kung Pao Enter the Fist, McGruber, and even big budget mishaps like Batman and Robin. These might be guilty pleasures, but they're also a kind of performance of the transgression of cinematic convention. They're a dime a dozen, and they usually lack any kind of cult status. Oh, poor George Clooney. He could be my Batman any day. And actually, speaking of slick silver creatures, I haven't mentioned Sharknado yet for a reason. We're gonna deal with that monstrosity in a minute. Anyway, I think we can all agree that Dude Wears My Car is a much different So Bad It's Good movie experience from, say, Birdemic. It's in comparison with these other kinds of bad that we might be able to locate the Maltese Falcon-esque truth of low-budget good-bad movies. Which, by the way, Nick Ruff let me know are called nanar in French, so I'm gonna say that from now on because it's rad and also much easier than saying good-bad movie over and over again. First, and most importantly, nanar have to be earnest. Meaning, it is probably going to be a better nanar if the people making it don't know that they're making and do not mean to make a nanar. It's easy to view such an arrangement as being a little sad, and given the time and cash involved, maybe even a little tragic. This is my tragic face. Everybody betrayed me. I fed up with this world. But I think that's another important aspect. Nanar do need to be at least a little tragic. No one has ever watched The Room and not thought to themselves, what are these people? How did this even... Oh, boy! But, like, in a good way. This intense experience of schadenfreude is so enjoyable, we even do it in huge groups. The Room and Troll 2 specifically go on tour, are celebrated with documentaries, and are shown at midnight screenings around the world. The Room even has its own particular set of audience participation pageantry. We couldn't find any white spoons, so... Sorry. The social aspect of Nanar is really key. I think, if we're being honest, they're not so much movies to be watched as they are movies to be known about, to be shared, and to share in the complete disbelief of. Watching is not the primary experience of Nanar. Celebrating is. This is a beautiful party. You invited all my friends. And so now, we're finally prepared to talk about Sharknado. <laughs> I enjoyed Sharknado as much as everybody else, including the people who enjoyed it even though they didn't see it. Because, according to some sources, Sharknado did better on Twitter than it did on television. In other words, Sharknado nailed the social aspect. People were so on board with Sharknado that they skipped watching and went right to celebrating. Which is not bad, no judgment zone, but I think might be indication number one that Sharknado belongs not in the good bad movie canon and that you cannot nanar on purpose. For all the excitement, Sharknado lacks the gut-churning characteristics of movies that are perfectly and earnestly far from perfect. Asylum, the company which made Sharknado, produces 10 to 15 movies a year and has produced 300 movies to date. Oh my God. That's a volcano! Lay, 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 lay. Amongst them are such hits as Plane vs. Volcano, The Coed and the Zombie Stoner, and Asian Schoolgirls. 
they know exactly what they're doing. And they very successfully do it. What's missing, though, is the grand narcissism needed to conceive of, make, and then distribute something that is not a success, or is only a success by way of its spectacular failures. It's missing Ed Wood's inability to think or spend within a budget, Claudio Fragrasso and Rosella Drudy's willingness to write a script in a language they didn't speak, and then refuse the help of the cast when they offered to fix it. Film, uh... To make Nanar on purpose, one necessarily lacks Tommy Wiseau's bizarre portrait of the American man, James Nguyen's jumbled ecological moralizing, and his just nearly unforgivable sound editing. There is a menu. Thank you. I'll be right back with you. Nanar are just as much about the film as it is about the making of the film and the lore surrounding it. They show us how films are made by being terrible at hiding the seams and all the moving parts. All the conventionally bad aspects on their own or even all together would probably make something not Nanar, but rather just unwatchable. But when packaged with a charm that is often the byproduct of a creator's narcissism and a community willing to gather to celebrate it, these characteristics turn from transgressions into triumphs and in doing so, announced some of the childishness of playing make-believe in front of a camera and lights. Sharknado lacks all of this. But in truth, it is a terrible movie that people love, and Asylum did it on purpose. So maybe the Nanar isn't some obnoxious mythical unicorn, as it is a shark propelled by the unrelenting force of nature. And by force of nature, I mean Hollywood production. What do you guys think? Can you make a movie that is so bad it's good on purpose? Let us know in the comments. And if you want to subscribe, just click on the football. Okay. Troll 2 was, as we said before, a film originally called Goblins. But then they called it Troll 2. This is uh, 1990, so it came uh, four years after the original Troll. And the original Troll made $5.4 million. And this film, the budget doesn't really go into it, I, I can't imagine much at all. But if they wanted to get in on that $5 million, then uh, calling it Troll 2... Because I don't think you can actually license the name Troll. In fact, the film's Quest for the Mighty Sword, also known as Ator 4, Ator 3, The Hobgoblin, or Hobgoblins, and Creepers, also known as Contaminator 7, or The Crawlers, both adopted Troll 3 as an alternate title for the same reason as Troll 2. They wanted to be confused with it. You... It's basically when you get to the bottom like this, you don't fear litigation so much as you do absolute obscurity. Which this would have deserved. What, Troll 2? Yes. Really? You're late. I'm sorry we had a small mishap. Here are the keys. Um, here are ours. Have a nice stay in Milbar. You in our city. Still telling the same story, Josh? Powers of evil are very strong here. I must leave. Goblins don't exist. Goblins don't exist. And remember... Kill They're eating her! Who's going to eat me? Kids with a sweet tooth.
like yours love ice cream. Delicious. Absolute obscurity. I suppose, yeah. Technically speaking, this uh, this was made by crazy people. Uh, it was uh, directed by uh, Claudio Fragrasso, credited as Drake Floyd. Produced by Brendan Norris, Joe Damanto, and Usher Zolovsky Larson. Um, it was apparently was it filmed in Italy? No, no. It was filmed in um, a place called Morgan. In uh, Porterville, in Utah, of course, in the summer of 1989. Okay, well, it was uh, it was an Italian production. Um, from the sounds of it, the uh, people who wrote the script wrote it in sort of a phonetic pidgin English. The production crew was made up almost entirely of non-English-speaking Italians brought to America by Fragrasso. The only fluent English speaker on set was costume designer Laura Gemser, <clears throat> who had built a reputation in the 1970s and 80s for her roles in various notorious Italian grindhouse movies and erotic films. Fragrasso and his crew largely relied on broken pidgin English to communicate with the cast, who recalled not being able to understand much of what went on now that really makes sense when you actually watch it because the whole thing feels incredibly disjointed like they don't really know what's going on there's a kind there's a madness to it there's a sort of genius but mostly just stupidity about it i think there's there's something in things like sets and costumes and the look of it but the script is dire it yeah. is appalling. But the script is bad, but the delivery is worse. That's true. And that some of the people in, in the cast worked out that the script was terrible and deliver it with eye-rolling over-the-topness. And others don't even seem to be trying to act. Well, didn't they? Is, isn't this the one where the, the cast kind of offered to fix the words because they didn't really yeah. make a lot of sense and, and they were the told, director no, refused. Yep, that's the one. Right, so rather than trying to explain the whole film, we'll just take you through it blow by blow. It starts because because if we explain it as a whole, it won't make sense. And if we go through it blow by blow, it won't make sense, but you'll be able to get a better idea of what it's like to actually watch the thing. Um, it starts off with a story time and a guy's walking through a forest and you're being told this story by an old grandpa, kind of like the Princess Bride. And a, a guy in a hat meets a girl. He falls. He's chased by trolls or goblins. Let's call them trolls for the sake of it, but they they were supposed no, to be. I think we should call them goblins. You they think? are referred to as goblins in the film. Yeah. Nobody in the film ever uses the word troll. Okay. Okay. Let's call it goblins then. In fact, that kind of ties into it. Important. Let's show you. Let's not call it trolls to tie it in with troll. It doesn't tie in with troll. Um, he is chased by trolls. He falls over. Goblins. He, goblins. He meets a girl with freckles drawn on her face in magic marker. I couldn't believe you couldn't find an actress with freckles. Or just leave the freckles off. And she feeds him like this big bowl of what looks like mint green sick. 
Clearly left over from bad taste. Yeah, okay, bad taste, obvious, clear influence here to start with. They, they were like, right, we're going to make ourselves a low-budget creature feature, watch bad taste, and we'll get some inspiration from that. And it, there, there are similarities between bad taste. But bad taste was directed by Peter Jackson, who was on his way to bigger and better things. These guys didn't have the steady hand he does. Indeed. Bad taste is not Nanar, because Peter Jackson and... Uh, Fran Walsh and Richard, Richard Taylor, Taylor. Was part of the gang. Was he not? Okay. Well, they knew precisely what they were doing. Yeah. Anyway, he, he drinks this bowl of green sick and glad he's like, oh yeah, I love a bit of green sick. And then starts bleeding like dark green paint out of the top of his head. When I say bleeding, like they're just pouring it on him from above. And he's going, no! And then the girl with the freckles on her face turns... I say turns into, the camera cuts back. There's no transformation. They did not pay any money for actual transformation scenes. It just cuts away and then back, and the transformation has happened without us looking. She's turned into a goblin. And then the goblins eat him. Now, the thing is, and this is what the entire crux of the movie rests upon, these goblins' favorite food is plants and vegetables. So they turn humans into plants or something, and they start bleeding chlorophyll, and then they eat them. Kind of, like they mush them up. It's like the fly. They can only eat them when they're all mushy. Um, and then the, you know, the story ends and the little boy goes, Oh, oh you're scaring me, Grandpa. And uh, then his mum comes in and the Grandpa disappears and she goes, You know your Grandpa's dead. He's dead. Dead, I tell you. You must banish him from your mind. This is when the actual, like, really, like, mind-blowingly awful uh, lines start coming in. And, and, and just this the preposterous psychology of the whole thing, it, it, you know, such as it is. You've also been introduced to the music at this point, which is what I described as, did I say Vince DiCola farting on a keyboard? Something like that, yeah. Yes, it is. It's, uh, the music is by uh, Carlo Maria Cordio, who doesn't have a Wikipedia page. Uh, so, yeah, that's when the trolls are, you know, when you go down in the woods today, you're sure of a big surprise. It's the goblins. Um, now... Here's the other thing. Another influence on these, this whole story, the works of Stephen King. Because the, the little boy seeing his grandpa talking to him, the grandpa being, uh, was the word prescient? Where he knows everything, everything that's going to happen? Yeah. Yeah. Um, he's got the shinning. Absolutely. Yeah, this is a, a kid named Little Joshua Waits. And uh, he talks to his grandpa, Seth, who should be dead by now. But, uh, you know, the grandpa's telling him all about these goblins. And then we cut to the sister's room. The sister's name is Holly, and she's working out. And you get these, like, shots of, like, posters of Tom Cruise and Johnny Depp on her walls. And then it cuts to a bunch of frat boys who are, like, looking in at her from the bedroom window. And one of them crawls in, and it turns out he's not a rapist. He's her boyfriend. Uh, Elliot, mm. and she begins the worst delivery in the entire film. I'll see if I can find a clip of this, but just, just basically, uh, j- just she's astonishingly bad. Elliot, what kind of idiotic joke is this? You scared the shit out of me. I'm the victim of a nocturnal rapture. I have to release my lowest instincts with a woman. Release your instincts in the bathroom. Are you nuts? He trying to turn me into a homo? Would it be too hard? If my father discovers you here, he cut off your little nuts and eat them. He can't stand you. 
And and you? I like you. But my family doesn't like you. They say you're good for nothing, and they spend way too much time with your friends. Oh, oh, but I swear I never see them. Elliot, how long is this going to take? We're sick of waiting for you. Uh, don't you want to come to Tonino's with us, Holly? Uh, don't you want some pizza? Hey, no, these are cute. These are cute. Hey, hey, hey. Do you see? What's wrong with having friends? Nothing. If you want to remain a virgin for life, you take them to bed with you too. And I don't believe in group sex. Is it true that your family is going on vacation tomorrow? Yes. I'll come with you. Okay, I'll tell my father that you're coming with us tomorrow. Where are we going? Nilbog, a wonderful half-empty town. It's an exchange. A family from the country is coming to live here, and we're going to live in their house. So yeah, they're moving to the little town of Nilbog、uh, for a month. It's a house exchange, and、um, cut. Let's just cut straight to the car, and then the boy. They're dr- driving along, and the boy's being told by his grandpa, "Don't go to Nilbog. Bad things will happen." And the boy. Starts bleeding chlorophyll out of his head, and then like branches start sprouting from his chest. I say sprouting; that implies some measure of movement and animation and transformation. They're just sort of there, wiggling about. It's just and they cut was... away, and they cut back, and there's more. Yeah, they cut away, come back, and then he sees his entire family as giant goblins. And when I say giant goblins, again, you're imagining too well, folks. Dial it back a bit. Just imagine the cheapest masks in. in... Imaginable, just like no cheaper, cheaper than that. No, 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 still too expensive, too lustrous. Cheaper, basically, just a layer of rubber shaped in the sort of rough face of a, a, a an overly chewed eraser on the back of some child's pencil. They're, they're like kid Halloween masks. They're not of any Hollywood quality at all. Yeah, they're bought in a dime store.、Um, so then they get to Nilbog. Nilbog. The, 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 the dad even spells it out. N I L B O G. Can you folks tell what's coming? They get to the creepiest family in the world. The family sort of gives them the, the, the keys to the house and say, "We are going now. It makes sure you eat, eat heartily. Bye bye." And then they get into this truck, and Grover Dill, the little kid out of、uh, the Christmas Story, chucks a baseball at little Joshua Waits, and the baseball says, "Was it like eat?" Eat before we eat you. In like green gel pen, gelatin, gel pen, or something on the baseball, and the kid like like surely just not telling him eat before we eat you would be a good way to get him to actually eat. It just seems like this kid's trying to play psychological warfare with this other kid, Joshua, our hero. Um. Do you know what it, they made me think of? Actually, this family when they turn up and they're giving them all the keys and they're like, "You are late. Here are our keys. Give、it's、us like, your keys." It's like it's, it's a, like a Simpsons Halloween special. Yes, that's exactly what I was thinking. It's、Hello、like mother, a parody of a horror film. <laughs> I, missed I missed you during my, my uneventful absence. <laughs> it's it's it, the whole thing plays out like us. It, it has the mentality of one of those Simpsons Halloween specials, but imagine. Ten minutes long. Yeah, those things are only seven minutes long because you get three per episode. They stretch this out to an hour and a half. Um. So yeah, Grandpa Shining turns up and says, "You gotta stop the meat and the dinner." And like the family are getting ready to eat a hearty supper that's of the food that's in this house because they're famished. And it's like 
like all the food that's been left behind for them are like these gross looking cakes with bright green icing on them and like corn on the cob with bright blue icing on it and like like water in jugs with green food coloring and it just looks like like not even a kid's halloween party would look this crap but they're getting down and ready to eat. And, like, Grandpa freezes time. And little Tommy or Joshua, whatever the fuck his name is, runs back into his family. And they're all sort of, like, they just got them to hold still. So the girl's up there with the corn, the corn, the corn, poised at her lips. And the kid's like, what am I going to do? How am I going to stop them eating this? I know. I'm going to have to do it. Jumps on the table. And we're like, oh, no. No, 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 no. Please. Whips it out. It basically just cuts immediately to the, the next scene. But basically, he takes a giant whiz all over the supper in order to stop them from eating it at all. And this, look, the dad, fireman carries him through the house. Remember the fireman carry, folks? That might come in useful later or not. And says, do you know what these names on the door mean? hospitality you don't piss on hospitality and then immediately starts to take off his belt and like my first thought was is he gonna take a whiz on his kid my second was like is he gonna beat his kid and again it's like the simpsons he says you know what i'm gonna do now tighten my belt by one notch because i've got hunger pains and it's like something homer would say and that's actually a really funny line almost like he improvised it um quite possibly actually because that does stand out from the rest of the script yeah Anyway, so again, with the, taking a whiz on the table and the kid being prescient via his dead grandfather, it's all Stephen King, clickety-clack, oh yeah, takes a whiz on the table, clickety-clack, yep, get all, you know, what, what, in that same kind of it, and, is there a kid in Tommyknockers? Oh, no, no. Okay, what other Stephen King film? oh, The Shining, obviously, what other Stephen King films and books have uh, a kid at the core? Well, you got, um, uh, Stand By Me. Yeah. Uh, Salem's Lot. Yes. Dreamcatcher. <laughs> yeah, Dreamcatcher, Firestarter. Uh, technically, from what I say here, here of it, one of the major stories in Cat's Eye, Little Drew Barrymore. We hate movies to do a review of it. Anyway, it's all Stephen King, and he takes a whiz on the table. Clickety-clack. Cut to the boyfriend who missed them. Like, he was supposed to meet them and come with them, and he didn't, so the sister's sulking. Uh, but he did come with them because he and his boys got into the Winnebago and drove up to, to Nilbog as well. And they're you're hanging around in the Winnebago, joshing with each other. And one of them, named Arnold, <laughs> um, spots a uh, panicking woman running by them in the forest. And she's, you know, got tattered clothes. Looks like she's been the victim of a uh, uh, an incomplete sexual assault. Uh and he runs after her, you know, like you would. Like if a woman's panicking and running, you'd run after her. That way, when a policeman can corner you, you say, it's not what it seems. So she's terrified. She's running. He fucking rugby tackles her, face plants her into the dirt. And she says immediately, Sharon, are you human? And he says, yes, I'm very human. Want me to prove it? It's not quite that. It's yes, very. Want to see. Yeah, he's a bit rapey. Rapey? Yeah. Um, or just I, utterly, utterly clueless and oblivious and, and pointless as a human being. Yeah, if you if you rugby tackle a panicking woman who's clearly been attacked, you want to start talking about sex at that point. Frankly, just the, the, the fact that when he sees her running, 
he's what he's just been complaining about just to give this a bit of context what he's just been complaining about to his friends is that in order to get them to come with with him elliot who is uh holly's boyfriend told them that there would be tons of uh liberated um sexy women in nilborg for them to hit on this poor poor woman is the first member of the female species that he's seen member of the female species yeah sorry well yeah okay this is this is the first woman he's seen since they've arrived and he he decides that this is his sex opportunity (laughs) panicking woman i'm in here it's just the way he's shouting after her as he chases her it's like never mind what might be following her at this point no no no. he's like stop hey come back tell me who you are because that's clearly the most important factor of this scenario oh what i'll do is i'll chase her and then we'll shag yes yeah there are porn movies that start out that way there are horror movies that start out that way guess which one this is (laughs) well technically it's a bit of both or not a bit of really. That sex scene isn't actually sex. No, it's not. That's an advert for corn. More on that later. Okay, so Arnold uh, runs after her. They then walk into a house apropos of nothing. Like He doesn't say, come back to the Winnebago with me. There are three strong, not at all rapey lads like me. We'll get you to safety. He says, let's just, just carry on staggering around in the forest. We might find someone's house. They go in to make a phone call. It's basically dressed up like a real, like a, imagine a woman half-heartedly dresses her house up for Halloween so that kids can come round. It's that. It's got sort of like a dry ice everywhere. There's sort of witch's brew on. Um, I say half-heartedly. If you're going to put dry ice in your house, that's wholeheartedly, maybe. I, I don't know. Just Maybe just low-budgetedly. Um, they then meet the mistress of the house, Credence Lenore Gilgood. The best performance in the film. The maddest performance in the film. She's like... like Six days out of drama school. She's she's going for it, man. She is just, like, going to roll her eyes and give the craziest, like, Nick Cage, Johnny Depp performance possible. Allow me to introduce myself. I am Creedence Leonore Dune of ancient druid origins. My ancestors came from Stonehenge. Am I mistaken, or is there something wrong with the two of you? We... We need a doctor, ma'am. Please call the nearest hospital. There is no hospital in Nilbog. Anyway, so Credence Lenore Gilgood is a witch, and she's helping the locals, who we won't spoil who or what they are, to feed on strangers. This girl who... Was she, like... Well, no, yeah. She, she gives this girl some broth and, like, makes her drink it, and uh, the girl starts immediately bleeding chlorophyll out of her head. Again, it's, like, just green paint. And then staggers up the stairs. Arnold's just sort of standing there, rooted to the spot, literally. And then you get that scene you might have seen on YouTube where this girl basically starts to fall apart 
Again, though, no transformation scene. Just cut away and then cut back. She's in another stage. Cut away and then cut back. She's in another stage. Turns into a giant green puddle with her head protruding out the top of it, screaming. And Arnold just roars the immortal lot. No. And then a bunch of goblins turn up and start gobbling her. And Arnold utters the immortal line. They're eating her. And then they're going to eat me. Oh, my God! Se la stanno mangiando. E dopo mangeranno me. Oh, mio Dio! Se la stanno comiendo. Y ahora me van a comer a mí. ¡Oh, Dios mío! Delivered in a way that's like, maybe this was the end of the day and he was so tired, but he's just, he's just bellowing it at this stage. There's something deeply unhinged about this moment. Like they just, it just, this is the point where the minecart of the film goes reeling off the rails and it never comes back on again because it's not long after this that the film basically just becomes multi-genre. So we cut back to the Winnebago and the flat and the frat boys are all sleepy. Like two of them, these are like 18 year old men are sleeping apparently naked in bed together and they're just absolutely cool with this if you want to see a single frame that's of a film that's really just like your brain jumps into the uncanny valley it's two macho frat boys lying naked in bed together without either of them thinking that it's anything big do you think this might possibly be because the director's italian and it did not occur to him that to americans this would be an issue but no because the actual actors don't seem the least bit uncomfortable with this I mean, great. Well, if, they're if, they're actors. Be, if they're trying to be liberated about it and like, look, look, yeah, maybe boys can sleep together. That's fine. However, it would appear that the film is based on an irritation from the, the writer that his friends were becoming vegetarians. See, these goblins turn people into vegetables and then eat them. You see the through flow of that particular thought? Hmm. Anyway, so another of the uh, frat boys named Jason goes off for a run. And then the sheriff stops him and says, you hungry? Have a sandwich. And gives him like a bap wrapped in cling film filled with what looks like green Play-Doh. And Jason tucks in like, oh, I'll probably be rude not to say it. Like, no way. No fucking way are you eating what looks like Play-Doh in a bap. You just thought, I'm going to save this bad boy for later. And then <laughs> bin that one straight away. He goes into the general store and the crazy boss-eyed man Played by a literal crazy boss-eyed man, responds to his, uh, do you guys have any coffee? With, oh, we don't have coffee. That's the devil's drink. Round here we drink Nilbog milk. And um, it's already been established by the mum of the house, by the way, the unconnected mum. Like, these are two completely different stories uh, being enacted in this film. And kind of neither the twain ever meet. The only unifying factor is actually Credence Lenore Gielgud herself. Uh, yeah, yeah, this Nilbog milk that's, uh, that the uh, fridge is full of is all off. It's all cottage cheese. And so, yeah, this uh, Jason's obviously, he's exhausted, he's parched, you know. So he goes off and he's like, right, better drink some of this off milk now. That'll be refreshing. 
drinks some, spits it out, and he's already like bleeding green chlorophyll out of his head, staggers into Credence Lenore Gilgood's house, <sighs> wanders around, and we see in the background Arnold, the one who was screaming, Oh my God! has been rooted to the spot and has now turned into a sort of tree man inside a giant plant pot. Oh, God. I can't even... It's just... It's, this is just mental. Um, I don't know that mental's even the right word to use here. It's... It's so disjointed. It's so... Jason pulls the bark off his face and he's... He, underneath this bark... He's kind of pissed off. He's like, ugh, yeah, you're going to get me out of here? God damn it, man. Like, not like, oh my God, I've been turned partially into a tree. This is the most agonizing thing ever. I can feel my humanity slipping away. It's like, the f- it's like a fucking Cronenberg movie, dude. It's not like that. He's not panicking. He's not freaking out. He's just like, ugh, would you get me out of here? God. And he demands that Arnold... Like, drag this enormous plant pot with him standing straight up in it across the floor. It's like, imagine trying to, to, to move an enormous yucca plant by the pot. It's dragging along the floor. It's like, come on, man. And then Credence gets home, tosses Jason onto the bed, and then whips out a chainsaw and says, it's okay, this will only tickle you, to Arnold, who immediately starts laughing as she starts to chainsaw him. It's like, how? How in your brain, director, do these three things scan together? And then the next thing is that the blender's going on the bed next to Jason, and it's blending something green, and then that's it. No more Jason, no more Arnold. We don't see what happens to them. We don't see Arnold come to a sticky end, cleaved in twain by a... Uh, chainsaw and then relieved of his sap to make a smoothie we don't see what happens to Jason we don't see the trolls eating him oh my god that's just it they, they take no further part in the story meanwhile in town little Timmy or Joshua or whatever the fuck his name is spots a sign in a mirror to, that shows Nilbog backwards and it reads as Goblin and the entire audience goes well yeah and then, in a panic, he runs into the local church, which is kind of like a for, for the greater good, like Wicker Man-style church. They grab him and try to feed him Nilbog ice cream, which is almost in direct parallel with the bit in Bad Taste where they all puke into one giant bowl and make one guy drink it. Except that they don't get to um, feed him the ice cream because his dad turns up. And he goes, they're goblins, they're goblins. And they go, ah, oh, the boys... Um, uh, feverish, obviously, he's crazy. It's like, which is, of course, not what you say to a boy's father if you're trying to cover up the fact that you're all goblins. For some reason, they all have like a four leaf clover tattoo on them, or like a birthmark or something. It's never followed up on. But yeah, they're all like wicker manning. And then the dad's like, oh, that's a bit odd. Let's go back to the barn dance. Suddenly, it's a barn dance. And there's all these old people clapping away. And, like, they've been roped in from the uh, the sidelines. They're all, like, members of the town. They don't know what's going on. They're clapping away. As far as they're concerned, it's a film about a barn dance. Uh, the guy who was saying, oh, no, it's the devil's drink his coffee, actually was uh, discharged from a lunatic asylum mere hours earlier. And uh, so apparently he's smoked an enormous amount of marijuana before his performance and doesn't really remember it. So that's not acting, folks. Can I help you? Coffee. There's no coffee here in Nilbog. It's the devil's drink. 
Eggs. Eh! Bacon. Are you crazy, boy? We're vegetarians here in Nilbog. Didn't you know that? Here's some Nilbog milk. Special milk. High in vitamin content. Here is free. Free? Of course it's free. We love tourists here in Nilbog. Try some, boy. And have some of your friends drink some also. Thank you. Do you feel all right? Yeah. Hey, you. Yeah? Your friend has a message for you. Who? Arnold? Yeah, that's him. He said... Oh, my God! To meet him in the house that looks like an old church. Okay. You can go through the woods. It's only about a mile away. Uh, yeah, and at this barn dance, which the family are invited to, there is a disgusting buffet, which once again, they've, like, uh, covered in icing with this bright green food colouring in it. And they're like, eat, 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 so that we can liquefy you and then eat you. Right, here is a question. These goblins can't eat meat, so they want to turn humans from meat into vegetable things, uh, liquefy them and then eat them. They live in the middle of the breadbasket. Or oh, I don't know how far Utah is Salt Lake City, isn't it? So it's actually quite much more sandy. But they, they live on ground that can be farmed upon, right? Why not, I know this sounds crazy, grow vegetables and eat them? Also, they do seem to be surrounded by woods. And the fact that they turn Arnold into a tree suggests that they can eat woody vegetable matter. I mean, nothing about this film makes sense. But the fact that the goblins seem to want to turn people into plants and then eat them because that's their favorite food, it that doesn't scan in any way. That's the sort of thing where, like, if you try to explain it to a producer, they say no. So these producers were off their trolleys. So anyway, the kid goes upstairs to his uh, bedroom or the, like, a bedroom. I think it, it is their house. Is it their house? I don't even know where this is at this point. Mm. The kid goes upstairs, and then a goblin bursts out of the mirror, falls onto the ground, and then there's like a real like slam up close up to this kid screaming, and then it slams up close up to the goblin, and the goblin like his hand flops out, and it's it's not intentional, but it looks like he's waving gang signs at this boy. And then who should turn up to save him? But Grandpa, the Grandpa that's dead, the Grandpa that might be a ghost, and hacks this troll almost said it goblin to pieces with a giant axe and then says uh we gotta get out of here i'm gonna make you a molotov cocktail you go throw it at the sheriff or at at the people at the goblins and i'll distract them with this fire extinguisher No, no 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 grandpa you give the fire extinguisher to the kid you throw the molotov cocktail I mean, you may be a ghost, but apparently you seem quite handy with a fire axe. Then the priest turns up, starts jabbering and raving at them, and uh, like goes all like demon-eyed. And the grandpa fires lightning, sort like 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 the screen flashes and it cuts to like a, 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 a like a lightning flash, like on a really basic machine. And then the uh, Molotov explodes in the priest's hands, and it's a guy on fire. And at this stage. 
it just becomes like consequences. It's like there is no actual theme or through flow narrative to this. It's just a series of randomly like thought up on the spot horror vignettes with right okay what are we going to do today folks um demon priest uh, what are we going to do now um woman comes out of tv because that's what happens next somehow um credence lenore gilgood makes herself young and she is like kate bush hot when she i mean basically if you get the actress to you know uh comb the gray out of her hair to brush her teeth to scrub the weird shit off her face. She's a relatively fetching actress. So she sort of, you know, um, beautifies herself. And then she's waltzing along the road on the TV in the Winnebago. And the remaining frat boy, whose name is Brent, uh, is watching the TV. And she sort of like the ring style says, I don't even want to remember what she is. She's like, I want to shag you. And she's in the telly. He pokes his head out the window and she's been walking down the road near him. Again, whatever you're imagining, the effects are too good. Tone it down a bit. Scale it back. It's just a woman on a road next to a caravan. She comes in. She has a corn on the cob in her belt. She takes the corn on the cob out. And it's almost, you know, prop comedy. This is prop horror. She's like... Now we're going to have some corn. She gets him down on the bed. She puts the corn in her mouth and goes, eat the corn. And like he starts eating the other side of this corn on the cob while she's eating it. And there's no reason why this is happening. And then suddenly the crew around them off camera start throwing popcorn at them. And I, I, I honestly, I, it's, it's just hilarious because you're starting to think, how... Did the conversation take place that this seemed like a good idea? <laughs> I think was personally. it decided right there and then? Yeah, I, I think what happened was they set up the scene with the two of them doing the the sort of sea lion dance over the corn cob, and the crew were so appalled by they the started, terribleness of the they acting thought they, they were watching a throwing crap movie popcorn, and throwing at, popcorn them. at what they thought was the screen. Yes. Yes. Brilliant. <laughs> it's the only possible explanation. So then the movie, like I said, it's already off the rails. The the minecart is now clattering over and over and over down the shaft. Um, <sighs> Later on, by the way, Brent wakes up and he's under a load of popcorn. And it would appear that the witch who had been getting it on with him buggers off and leaves him unscathed. He doesn't turn into a giant corn cob. They wouldn't pay to fabricate a giant man-sized ear of corn. So he's lucky. He just gets to spit out some popcorn and go, well, what the hell was that? Which is like most people watching this film. Um, then the goblins attack, and they start talking about Stonehenge, like like Stonehenge is up its stairs in this house, and we're, we're, we're now in the house of... Credence Lenore Gilgood again somehow and this is where the barn dance took place and the kid the, the family are getting chased around by the goblins who should have attacked them in the first place they would like they were trying to get them to eat this food but they won't eat the food eat the food Tina um and so yeah they're chasing them around and then the grandpa says we have to touch Stonehenge because only goodness can deal with this evil but then the boy realizes what he can do, like he's getting cornered by goblins and like they grab him by the legs and the arms and he's finished. He's done for. They're going to kill this kid. But then he pulls out a bologna sandwich. Michael. Yeah. Who are the goblins? 
The goblins? <laughs> From his backpack. And I cannot describe to you how absurd it is to see this witch and these goblins go, No! When this boy starts munching down his bologna sandwich. It's like only goodness and bologna can combat these dwarves. They're such militant anti-meat eaters that you can see the subtext here about anti-vegetarianism. It's so clumsy and like, it's clumsy to the point of beyond absurdity. Dear Elliot Cooper, tomorrow morning will be your final judgment. Either me or your boys. Take it or leave it. The beautiful Holly Waits or your lovely little boys. Make a choice, Elliot. So yeah, the one munches it down. Then they all, the whole family, fondles Stonehenge. That lightning from before happens, and the goblins are defeated. They drive home. Somehow the boyfriend has survived. I don't know what happened with the boyfriend. He was there was never any set place where he was throughout the movie. I think he just he travels up in the Winnebago and then he wanders over to the house. Meets them around about the time of the goblin attack. Doesn't really take any part in the action proceedings. You'd think the boyfriend would be the one who does the most action-y stuff. But no, it's the little kid. Because um, he's the one with the most invested in it. And they, they like the boyfriend, the sister and the dad are sat out in the station wagon for no reason. For the rest of the movie. There's like five minutes left and they just sat out there. The boy and his mum go in and his mum says, I'm going to eat an apple. You go upstairs, I'm going to take a shower. And then the boy goes to the stairs and the baseball drops down. And on the baseball, in this sort of green gel pen, is written, Yummy mom is so good. And the boy goes, oh my god. Goes upstairs very slowly, looks in the shower. There's a bunch of green shit. And you're like, oh my god, the mom took a shower and then had a bunch of green shit. No, that actually isn't what happened. And there's no actual real scientific reason why what happened happened twice, it would seem. So then the boy very slowly works his way around the house and then goes down into the living room and sees a bunch of goblins around the giant green puddle. And they're just... This has been said before, but I'll say it again. They're not actually eating it. It's just a bunch of uh, of actors in suits, like like gathering up green goo and sort of like smearing it over the front of their mouth. They're not even like cookie monstering it, where they're like with gusto going nom 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 nom. They're just sort of like m- like ruining the suits. And then one of them like like angles its awkward head around towards the kid and goes, "Do you want some, Joshua?" To which he screams in reply, and the end. Mm-hmm. And that's the twist. The twist is that exactly what we've been saying is going to happen throughout this whole movie happens. It's not as good as The Room in terms of Nanar. I actually think The Room beats out even the mighty Edwards uh, Plan 9 from Outer Space. But it might be the third best Nanar that we've seen, or the third worst, if you will. And now, I mean, we've got to discuss Nanar because we want to see more of these. We want you guys to suggest your Nanar to us, but we need to lay down a criteria for what Nanar are. 
We discussed before this that it can't be something that's big budget. If it's big budget, then it's a waste of money, and that could have gone to some starving kids. I mean, if it's low budget, that could have gone to some starving kids. But it's almost like the last that this generates is worth the low budget. Uh, what were the other criteria? Um, that it can't be it, – it has to have achieved some kind of popularity or cult status. Yeah, it can't be so obscure no one's even heard of it. Yeah. Um, or so bad that everybody ignores it. Yeah. Um, it can't be a terrible waste of talent. Say, so for example, I mean, there are arguments to be made for the remake of The Wicker Man because you could say that Nick Cage is wasting his talent. But if he wasn't doing this shit film, he'd be doing another shit film. So it's not a waste of anything. He's just there on the day. And also, there's something, there's almost got to be something doomed from the start about the film for it to be truly nanar like this could never have been good yeah but just because the people approaching it are doing so with a level of uh lack of awareness of what it takes to make a film in fact i think that's that's quite a crucial element to it actually that it needs to be the people who made it had to feel proud of it that like they achieved something or maybe not proud of it but they push it out anyway well no because it right there's a there's a kind of a fulcrum point here they need to be uh confident enough in the work that they think it's worth putting out there yet when they watch it they don't put their head in their hands and go oh my god this is terrible and bury it see um the Wicker Man was produced, was directed by Neil LeBute, who has directed In the Company of Men, which is a good film. Everything else that I'm, I'm seeing on here, I'm not actually seeing films that I liked or have seen or have heard good things about. Mm. So maybe you can just say In the Company of Men was a, a, a blip. Mm. But um, I think The Wicker Man was, was, they were trying to remake a classic that everybody who, who is a fan of it is a real fan of it. And there's almost no way it could be good, but the choices they make made it even worse than it could possibly have been. I don't think it really could be in the NAR because it had the studio behind it. Yeah, see that I think the involvement of a studio kind of precludes Nanar because if you have one person who's out for this Yeah, or a couple of people who are just like despotically, crazily arrogant that they just gotta get it out there. Yeah. If you have a studio involved and if you have executives involved, somebody somewhere is gonna say, Look, this is terrible, it's going nowhere, we're yeah. not putting any money behind this. Studios, I don't think, will allow Nanar to happen because they will say, we're not pouring any more money after this. No, see, what happens there is things like Mars Needs Moms, uh, Disney put it out grudgingly in a few theatres and don't advertise it at all. They decide it's not going to make any money, and so they ensure that it doesn't make any money, but that it doesn't cost them any more money. So, I mean, the, the, the list actually is going to be pretty short, and... As uh, the Idea Channel said, you can't include things by the Asylum or or other really jaded, cynical filmmakers who just put out stuff they know is crap uh, that they uh, know will make X amount on DVD. Uh, And you can't cite, for example, anything by Uwe Boll because he approaches filmmaking cynically. He knows that his films are shit, but he gets grants from the uh, German government because they know his films are shit, but that they'll still make money. He should be... Uh, they should be ashamed of him. They should not fund him, and yet his films still happen. 
Uh, the um, the movie movies they don't count because they're funded by uh, s- small studios. I mean, we we started watching um, the Starving Games the other day, and uh, I, we just jumped to a bit, and uh, the girl playing Katniss Everdeen uh, turns up on stage, and she's got her flame dress on. I said, right, okay. Uh, within 12 seconds, she's going to spin around and catch on fire, and she's going to be real fire. She's going to run around on stage on fire and go, ah, I'm on fire. And that's exactly what happened. And um, there was a bit where she was shitting in the woods, but she was wearing trousers. It didn't make any sense. It was just a poo joke. But it, it's, that's just an awful film. There's nothing so bad it's good about those films. Those are just dismal. There's got to be something almost like... They they didn't shoot for the sky with Troll Two and and you know Tommy Wiseau didn't shoot for the sky with the room, but I think there's a there's a level of confusion in the actual execution of it that makes it nanar. I suppose that's it. Maybe just confusion when it comes down to it. Like the people are incompetent and don't know what's going on. So yeah, um, tell us your nanar. We want to see more of these and we want to uh, share them with you folks. You can get Troll and Troll 2 on DVD for about a fiver in the UK and America. We don't suggest you get the Blu-ray. Don't be crazy. It was taken off Netflix because the license lapsed. uh, And it is worth owning. It is worth showing to friends. It's flabbergasting. But it's not one of those don't say we didn't warn you scenarios. We suggest you watch this film. We suggest you experience this film. It's terrible, but you'll have a laugh watching it. Mm. And if you can get it in a double pack with Troll, then actually owning a film which isn't actually all that halfway bad in terms of daft 80s creature features. I mean, it's better than House, which is it's another, it's another f- similar film. Anything more on Troll 2? Any more of the bits that we, I haven't mentioned? Um, I don't think so. I mean, I was a bit puzzled as to why it's never made entirely clear why... Um, uh, I've forgotten her name. Lenore Gielgud. Credence Lenore Gielgud. <laughs> why she keeps uh, spiralling back from... Uh, terrible, scabby, grey-haired... There's an inconsistency to her makeup as well, isn't it? Yeah. Sometimes she has crusty lips, sometimes she doesn't, sometimes she just has gammy teeth. But there there doesn't seem to be any consistency about why this happens. Yeah. But again, it's it's just like uh, uh, a woman uh, going for an office Halloween party has just gone, right, I'm going to be a mad witch today. And she uh, looked around her house and took three minutes to put her costume together, and that was that. Significantly, uh, you mentioned almost nobody uh, from this film ever worked again. Uh, Michael Stevenson, the kid who played Joshua Watts, actually went on to direct a uh, film called Best Worst Movie, which is a documentary about this film and how terrible it was, which I'd actually really like to see. It's not cheap. It's a lot harder to get hold of than uh, Troll and Troll 2, but it is out there on DVD for people to view. Are we going to do two feelings today? I think we are, aren't we? Dr. Hardy's office is Peter. We don't speak too much about it. Is that really my son? It was so not him. The strangest thing to watch. Will you kill me if I tell him? Don't tell him, tell him. <laughs> it was just crazy because nobody in the community even knew that George was in a film. I was in a movie back in 1989. 
cop troll too. And it's become known as the worst film of all time. Really? Yes. Well, I left in about the middle of the boot. It was so bad. I maybe hoped it wouldn't be as bad as it was, um, but it was. I had no idea what it all meant or what I was doing or what I was saying. By every conceivable measure, this is a bad film. Oh my gosh, that's the worst movie I've ever seen. There's this movie you've got to see. I've watched it a million times. Thank you all for coming to the fifth annual Los Angeles Troll 2 party. Oh, oh my God, you didn't see it? You haven't seen Troll 2? We're watching it now. And that's what people do with this movie. They pass the DVD around like it's Bible. Two decades after it was made, Troll 2 is finally finding an audience. It is sold out for tonight. My friends and I thought we were like the only people in the world who knew about this. Wow. Hey, nice to meet you. <laughs> I don't feel that kind of feeling when I'm drilling a cavity. What do you think of you at the worst movie? I did a very good movie. He really believed in what he was making. Action! You are an actor. Okay. You cannot I will love. I really wanted to be an actor from, from the start. Oh, boy. I think George was born an actor. Dentistry is just a stage he's on. Can I ask you another question? Honestly, I'm like a cult luminary. When I go to these screenings, I would never dream. Does anybody want my autograph? But anyway, we'll go over your treatment okay. plan in just a second. So. I was in a film. I was in a film called Troll 2. Okay. But yeah, he made that in uh, March 2009 to celebrate the 20-year anniversary of this film, possibly as a coping mechanism, possibly to exercise demons. I would say I hope he was paid well for this first film, but I know I doubt you also need to. <laughs> They said all the green cakes you can eat. They're not even green cakes. They're cakes with shitty green Play-Doh icing on them. What would you say is the best thing about this film? The best thing? Yeah. I mean, oh, the corn bit God. really is just so... I mean, teenagers these days would say it's just so random. I would say it's just it's surreal enough to seem like whose line is it anyway with horror. I suppose uh, it's um, it's delivered with such a lack of conviction, though. It's it's like bad porn. It's like really bad, cheap porn that's gone just above the level of um, sort of actual enthusiastic amateur uh, to apathetic professional <laughs> um I, I just, oh god what's the best thing about this film I, I i honestly could not put my finger on one thing about this film that intrigued or, or appealed to me i mean the, the as a whole it's laughable it's it's very amusing um but there's nothing that's good about this no, nothing. Possibly the belt notch line. I was going to say, yeah, the belt notch line, if that was improvised, then fair play to the dad. Mm. If it wasn't improvised, then fair play to whoever wrote that. Because just the way it's, it's done and the way it's delivered is, uh, is smart enough to be a Simpsons joke. Yeah. So I would give that that. But I, th- I think really when it comes down to it, the best thing about this film is, is just picturing the production of it. Mm. To that end, I now really kind of want to see Best Worst Movie to hear what people say about this film. Yeah. 
Because it's a cult classic and people go to see screenings of it. You know, they all join in in giant choruses of, they're eating her and then they're going to eat me. Oh my God! Do see Best Worst Movie. It's an absolutely fabulous documentary, a thousand times better made than Troll 2 and just as entertaining. It's available on Netflix UK right now. It's actually kind of sweet to see what's become of the actors, especially the father, George Hardy, who's actually a really nice guy and surfs a wave of adulation from Troll 2 fan viewings all the way to a regular sci-fi convention where, sadly, nobody knows who he is. The Troll 2 director Claudio Fragrassi and his co-writing partner, Rossella Drudi, come off as arrogant, pushy despots who enjoy the attention but hate the criticism and don't seem to get the joke. Which is kind of the point of Nanar. Let us know your favourites on the forum, and we're going to play you out with an astonishing musical moment from the original Troll, when suddenly the rubber boglins all start singing in the living room forest. Read to us, Malcolm. Well, maybe your parents wouldn't. You promised. What you got you roped into, Malcolm? Your daughter's asked me to recite a pretty long piece. What does she want to hear? The Fairy Queen. Heady stuff, Squirt. Not so surprising. Her father is a very great writer. Well, not a great writer, but... We're ready when you are, Malcolm. <clears throat> now remember, this was written a long time ago. We know. We know. <clears throat> A gentle knight was riding across the plain, all clad in mighty arms and silver shield, wherein old dints and deep wounds did remain, the cruel marks of many a bloody field. Yet armies till that time did he never wield. His angry steed did chide his foaming bit. Upon a great adventure he was bound That fairest Gloriana to him gave The greatest, glorious queen of fairyland Idle dream was to him brought unto that elfin knight 
he bade him fly, where he slept soundly, void of evil thought, and with false shoes, abuse his fantasy. <laughs> Ha, 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 ha.